Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. Today on CardioScripts, we are excited to be joined by Dr. Tom Yurga. Dr. Tom Yurga is a clinical pharmacy specialist in the outpatient cardiology clinic at the Lieutenant Colonel Charles S. Kettles VA Medical Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Dr. Yurga graduated from Chicago State University College of Pharmacy and then went on to complete a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency at the John H. Stroger Jr. Hospital of Cook County in Chicago, where he focused his clinical experience and research on pharmacist involvement in ambulatory care, diabetes management, and cardiovascular disease treatment. After graduating residency, Dr. Yurga accepted a faculty role at Roosevelt University College of Pharmacy with a clinical practice site at the Cardiology and Diabetes Clinics at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago. He holds pharmacy board certifications in pharmacotherapy, ambulatory care, and cardiology. He is a certified diabetes care and education specialist, and he recently received the honor of becoming an associate of the American College of Cardiology. His passion for cardiology led him to his current position at the VA hospital in Ann Arbor, where he is responsible for managing a spectrum of cardiac disorders, such as optimizing heart failure regimens, which is his main area of focus. He serves as a subject matter expert to the VA academic detailing service and also serves as a preceptor to the VA PGY-1 pharmacy residents and in partnership with the University of Michigan to PGY-2 cardiology residents. So as you can tell from this bio, Tom is a very busy guy, and we are so grateful that he took some time to join us here on CardioScripts. So welcome on board, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. We're excited to have him on board to talk about the DELIVER trial. The DELIVER trial was presented at the ESC 2022 meeting and simultaneously published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Dipagliflozin had been found to have heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular mortality benefit in HFRF patients per the DABA-HF trial in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. And the Emperor Preserve trial found that empagliflozin reduced morbidity in HFPEF. And Deliver sought to answer the question asking if dipagliflozin is beneficial in patients with an ejection fraction of 40% or higher encompassing patients with heart failure, mildly reduced ejection fraction, preserved ejection fraction, and improved ejection fraction. And patients were randomized to dipagliflozin 10 milligrams daily or placebo. The primary outcome was a composite endpoint of worsening heart failure, which they defined as unplanned hospitalization for heart failure or urgent visit for heart failure or cardiovascular death. So two components of this composite primary endpoint. Secondary outcomes included the total number of worsening heart failure events and cardiovascular deaths, change from baseline and total symptom score on the Kansas City cardiomyopathy score at eight months, and death from any cause. They included patients who were 40 years or older, were NYHA classes two through four, and had a history of typical signs and symptoms of heart failure six weeks or more before enrollment, with at least intermittent need for diuretic treatment. Ejection fraction of greater than 40% and evidence of structural heart disease were also required. And elevated BMPs and off of IV heart failure therapy, including diuretics, for at least 12 hours prior to enrollment or 24 hours prior to randomization. They excluded patients with the EGFR of less than 25, systolic blood pressure of less than 95 millimeters of mercury, 
Their systolic blood pressure was 160 millimeters of mercury or higher, not on treatment with three or more blood pressure lowering medications or 180 millimeters of mercury or higher, irrespective of treatment. Patients were also excluded if they had had MI, unstable angina, or coronary artery revascularization within 12 weeks prior to enrollment. They included roughly 3,100 patients who were randomized to either dipagliflozin or placebo, and patients had a mean age of about 72 years. About 44% of patients were female, 71% white, 21% Asian, about 2.5% black, and about 14% of patients were in North America. 74% had an NYHA classification of 2. The mean ejection fraction was 54%. 33% of patients had an ejection fraction of less than 50%. About 35% had an ejection fraction between 50 to 59%, and about 30% had an ejection fraction of 60% or greater. About 88% had a past medical history of hypertension and almost 20% with an ejection fraction of 40% or less. What they found for the primary outcome, it occurred in 16.4% of those in the DAPA group versus 19.5% of those in the placebo group. There was a hazard ratio of 0.82 and a 95% confidence interval of 0.73 to 0.92. When you broke down the components of the composite primary outcome for worsening heart failure, a hazard ratio was 0.79 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.69 to 0.91. So that was found to be a statistically significant benefit with dipagliflozin versus placebo. For cardiovascular death, though, they found a hazard ratio of 0.88 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.74 to 1.05. So that benefit in the primary outcome was driven by worsening heart failure. And so that is a brief overview of the DELIVER trial. And so, Tom, I think even before we dive into this trial, we could just take a moment to talk about where are we at in October of 2022 with hef therapy, and I guess more specifically, where were we before the DELIVER trial came out? That was an awesome overview of the DELIVER trial, so I'm really excited to talk a little bit more about it. So... If we want to talk about where we are in October of 2022 with half-path therapy, I think it would be really good to think about like where we were uh, in terms of guidelines and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and mildly reduced ejection fraction therapy. First, omitting the 2022 heart failure guidelines, I think it would be reasonable to jump all the way back into the past and think about where we were in 2013 during the guidelines and then during the 2017 update. We'll notice that there's not a lot of data on treating heart failure with an EF of greater than 40%. So trials like the Charm Preserved trial in 2003 that looked at Candesartan, we saw that there was really no huge reduction in in, uh, endpoints. Really, the only thing that we see was reduction in hospitalizations, and that's after some further analyses uh, were done. So then we went a few years, and the 2013 guidelines were published, and that's really what we had. All we had to go off of was the 2003 Candace Harton trial, and the recommendations were that in order to treat patients with preserved ejection fraction, it would be best to treat underlying conditions, right? So hypertension, AFib and try to control those conditions in order to improve outcomes in people with half path or heart failure with. At that point, there was really no solid definition of left ventricular ejection fraction of greater than 40% as meaning mildly reduced or preserved, but uh, for the sake of definitions, like that's what we'll use. So 
we really had nothing to go off of until then. The following year after the 2013 guidelines were published, we had the TopCat trial. So I think we can go on the whole diatribe about the TopCat trial with uh, spironolactone. But the biggest takeaway was that spironolactone did indeed reduce the risk of hospitalizations for heart failure and that was, with preserved ejection fraction. And that was kind of, a, that was a big deal. So when the 2017 guidelines or the 2017 update to the 2013 guidelines came out, they did mention that the addition of spironolactone or mineral or corticoid receptor antagonists should be considered in order to reduce the risk of hospitalization. So by the 2017 update, really that's all we had. We had ARBs and a lot of us used ACE inhibitors instead of ARBs and then spironolactone and truly nothing else stood out. Right. So there were a few other trials that were done. The RELAX study that looked at phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. We had the NEAT trial, the neat ff trial that looked at nitrates, and those didn't really show anything. Actually, the 2017 update said to not use these agents because they showed no improvements in endpoints and they were trying to look at exercise capacity. So again, a few years go by and we truly have nothing. So then the 2019 Paragon study that looked at succubitral valsartan. And then the, that was a pretty interesting study because even though the primary endpoint was not met, they did find that there was the reduction in hospitalizations in that population of patients who had a left ventricular ejection fraction of less than 57%. So that was kind of a big deal. If we think back to three years ago, that was one of the other agents that we thought, okay, this is this could be something in reducing hospitalizations. But again, there's a caveat, right? Because now you have to have a lower ejection fraction. And the FDA actually did change the package insert recommendations and then in the succubitral varsartan recommendations for people with heart failure. They removed the reduced ejection fraction and they substituted that with, you know, just general heart failure with a caveat that the lower the EF, the greater the benefit. And then when we had vitality have path with varicigwat, varicigwat reduced hospitalizations in patients with reduced EF. But Vitality, HFPF with Verisiguat and HFPF showed that there was no difference. So again, we went a few years between Charm Preserved and about the time when the 2022 guidelines were about to drop. And the biggest, the most exciting trial to uh, drop in many, many years was Emperor Preserved. So I think as we're talking about SGLT2 inhibitors now, this is actually the one-year anniversary of Emperor Preserved being dropped. So uh, happy anniversary to Ampagliflozin. And that was exciting because we saw that reduction in hospitalizations. There was no reduction in mortality, but nonetheless, we had yet another agent that is recommended to add to half PEF and have uh, mildly reduced EF to reduce hospitalizations. And Emperor Preserved did make it into the 2022 heart failure guidelines, which is pretty awesome. And if we look at the breakdown of recommendations in both half PEF and mildly reduced EF, we see that the recommendation to start SGLT2 inhibitor therapy, just based on the Emperor Preserved, got a 2A recommendation. And that's above the 2B recommendation for things like succubitral varsartan, spironolactone, or angiotensin receptor blockers. So when Emperor Preserved came about, 
I think it was a really exciting time. And I think we were all looking forward to seeing the results of Deliver, which was ongoing at the time of the 2022 heart failure guidelines. So where are we right now with half therapy as of October of 2022? I think we can confidently say that out of the selection of agents that we have, given absence of direct indications as of 2022, when it comes to half uh, mildly reduced EF and half path I think it's safe to say that starting SGLT2 inhibitors should be at the front of our decision-making, especially when it comes to patients who do, do tend to be symptomatic, especially when it does come to patients who have that higher requirement for diuretic therapy. Thank you for, for nicely summarizing that, Tom. And I'll just throw in there, you alluded to TopCat and maybe some controversy or a lot of discussion that comes with that trial. We had a CardioScripts episode that came out on that with Dr. Kathleen Falkenberg back in February of 2020. And then Emperor Preserved, we also had an episode that came out exactly a, a year ago with Dr. Alex Goncharenko. So take a listen to those just to refresh yourself, but a really nice overview. And I think that segues perfectly into the DELIVER trial. So Tom, what... When you read through it, were your just overall thoughts of Deliver and some big takeaways that you had? Sure. Yeah. So when I was going over Deliver, I thought this is definitely an important trial. It definitely added to the existing body of knowledge, especially when it comes to SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. I mean, it was a multi-center, multinational uh, trial. So you know, just that sheer fact increases its validity over uh, worldwide. However, when we look at the ethnicity breakdown, then once again, we are disappointed because uh, it's skewed more so towards Caucasian patients with 71% of uh, patients being white, about a fifth being Asian, and then we only had about two and a half percent black patients. So the black representation of patients was even less than an emperor preserved. But nonetheless, characteristics of patients were pretty balanced. When it comes to the results themselves of the trial, I don't think a lot of us were holding our breaths after Emperor Preserved was published. We probably would have been more surprised if there were neutral findings or we would have been more disappointed. I think we would have been very surprised if there was any mortality benefit found, like very specifically mortality benefit found. But we know that the study wasn't specifically powered for that anyway. I think the biggest thing that I was thinking about was how does this compare to Emperor Preserved? Both trials showed a very similar benefit in terms of starting SGLT2 inhibitor therapy and reducing the primary outcome, just you know, doing a side-to-side comparison, we see that the number needed to treat for dapagliflozin was about 33, and then for ampagliflozin uh, was about 31. And that was over a period of a similar amount of time, about two years. So that already shows us that there's overlap between the two studies in terms of the benefits of the two agents, which are almost identical in efficacy. So the largest difference when it comes to baseline characteristics, I think, between the two trials was the age was different for inclusion criteria, 40 years of age or older in Deliver, and then in uh, Emperor Preserved, it was above 18. But at the same time, the mean age for participants was about the same, 72 years of age, give or take about a decade. And so overall, very, very similar trials showing very, very similar results. I like the design of Deliver, so I think it's important to spend some time talking about how well designed Deliver was because the authors were trying to answer some questions that were left behind by Emperor Preserved. If we take a second to think back about what happened in the results of Emperor Preserved, we'll remember that as you went up on the left ventricular ejection fraction scale, it seemed like ampagliflozin 
lost benefit, right? If we remember that forest plot and Emperor Preserved, we see that when you got to that EF of greater than 60%, there seems to be no benefit. So in order to get ahead of this, the authors of Deliver performed an analysis of the overall population and in patients with an LVF of uh, less than 60%. So when they compared the two statistical analyses, sure enough, they found that the benefit of dapagliflozin was observed regardless of the uh, left ventricular ejection fraction. And by the time they were designing this trial, it was already found that the analysis in Emperor Preserved was also likely just the statistical nuance. Uh, we knew that the benefit of SGLT2 inhibitors, or specifically at that time, empagliflozin, was robust regardless of LVEF. So again, funny enough, if you look at the forest plot of just the liver, you see that the opposite is true in regards to the EF benefit. It seems like the higher you go, the, the greater the benefit. So again, this kind of just goes back to us looking at forest plots and just taking that with a grain of salt and remembering that, you know, this is just a forest plot. It's supposed to be hypothesis generating and it's not supposed to be constructive evidence. Another thing that they did that I found to be really useful was that they accounted for the excess number of hospitalizations and deaths during the COVID-19 pandemic. Emperor Preserved ended just as the pandemic was being announced, uh, while the liver went from August 2018 all the way through the end of December 2020. So a full third of the trial occurred during the pandemic conditions. So they, they really accounted for that and they found that you know the COVID-19 pandemic didn't influence uh, the statistics greatly. Uh, in terms of excess hospitalizations and excess deaths. So I think that the other thing that they did good with is this was another trial that looked at the win ratio, which I think has been becoming more popular in clinical trials. They didn't look at the win ratio uh, for the primary endpoint, but they used it for the uh, KCCQ score. So for the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire score. And they found that sure enough, empagliflozin does not just reduce hospitalizations, but it also improves symptom scores of patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fractions. So one of the observations made before was, yeah, these medications in regards to spironolactone or succubitral bilsartan or candesartan, they do improve the rates of hospitalizations, but do we truly know how well they improve patient function? Well, uh, this is when the wind ratio comes in, and I like that they used it because it tells us that patients on these HGLT2 inhibitors uh, do experience more symptomatic benefit. So the quality of life actually does improve in addition to a reduction in hospitalization. So I think that was a really big move. When I think about the delivered trial, I think about all the robust methodologies that they used to analyze the trial. And even though we didn't see that reduction in mortality, I still think that it was pretty great to see that reduction in hospitalizations that basically just tells us that, you know, SGLT2 inhibitors based on Emperor Preserved and now based on Deliver are a solid choice for first-line therapy and half-path patients. Thanks for walking us through that, Tom. So I guess my question for you you know, we kind of lump all of these patients with an ejection fraction of greater than 40 together. In previous iterations of the guidelines, it's been, you know, heart failure, borderline preserved ejection fraction. Now we have the terminology heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction of 41 to 49. HEFPEF is 50% or higher. In reading these trials, my question is, are there specific populations or, or phenotypes within this population we're talking about that may benefit more from SGLT2 inhibitors? You kind of talked about the uh, ejection fraction breakdowns and the differences that we saw between Emperor Preserved and Deliver. 
And I totally agree with what you said. These are subgroup analyses. These are really hypothesis generating. Um, I think this is a good example of that. Any other thoughts regarding this on specific populations within this group of patients that may potentially benefit more from SGLT2 inhibitors? Yeah, absolutely. So again, taking a look at the forest plots, again, noting that these are not supposed to be evidence generating. Uh, but we do see that when you look at the plot, you do really see a benefit in a lot of different patient groups. So pinpointing a specific population becomes difficult because the question comes up like, geez, who does not benefit from SGLT2 inhibitors, right? But I think the important thing to take away is, you know, we're still looking at our patients with baseline diabetes. We're still looking at our patients with uh, baseline CKD. We still know that SGLT2 inhibitors are nephroprotective. They're, they're a good choice for our diabetic patients. So even though there was no extra benefit of these agents in these types of populations, it's still important to recognize that, you know, if you're questioning whether to start an SGLT2 inhibitor in somebody with an LVF of, you know, basically above 40%, if they have diabetes, if they have CKD with an EGFR of, in this case, above 25, then there's no reason not to start this medication because it is definitely indicated. But in terms of just solid benefits, Benefits. I think the takeaway based on the deliver and the inclusion criteria of deliver is that patients who are congested, patients who are symptomatic, are more likely to benefit from SGLT2 inhibitor therapy, especially those who were just recently hospitalized. So in the deliver trial, only about 40% of patients had any prior hospitalization. And if you look at the breakdown of the patients, you see that maybe only a tenth of all patients in the delivered trial had a very recent hospitalization for heart failure. And by that, I mean like within the last 30 days. So you definitely see benefit with SGLT2 inhibitor therapy in those types of patients. Funny enough, when you look at the forest plot, you see the opposite. You see that there's a loss in benefit in those who were recently hospitalized. But, you know, again, taking the forest plots with, with a grain of salt, you see that the uh, confidence interval on that one is is massive. It's really wide, uh, but numerically it shifts towards the benefit for dapagliflozin. So again, forest plot, grain of salt, but think about those who are recently symptomatic. The other thing that we should think about is what are some other benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors in terms of decongesting patients? We know that starting an SGLT2 inhibitor likely will decrease the loop diuretic requirement for a lot of patients. It's more likely to have a faster onset of benefits. So in the deliver trial, the benefit was observed as soon as two weeks after starting therapy. So that's really quick for improvements in benefits, reducing the need for a loop diuretic. We know that has beneficial effects in terms of uh, protecting patients' kidneys. So thinking about who of your patients is symptomatic, then a lot of us might want to look at things like our natriuretic peptides. I would probably not go searching for the best either, you know, NT, pro BNP or BNP to start these agents. Because when you look at the analyses and deliver, you see that they broke it down based on at a level of about a thousand uh, picograms per milliliter. So I, I wouldn't be looking for specific numbers of, of BNP or, or NT, pro BNP to start these agents. But in general, you should probably take that as a sign that the more congested a patient, the more likely they are to derive benefit of this therapy. 
And, you know, Tom, just to add on to that, there was a recent post hoc analysis that came out in Jack that kind of aligns with what you're saying. So they found with higher NT pro BNP, it seemed like those patients may have benefited a little bit more. But again, this was a post hoc analysis, but interesting nonetheless. Yeah, exactly. And when I when I looked at that post hoc analysis, again, the, this is what the biggest takeaway from those types of analyses is, right? The more congested a patient, the more they will likely benefit from, you know, obviously diuretic adjustments, because at the end of the day, diuretics as needed are still a number one recommendation by the guidelines. But our goal should be to reduce diuretic need over time. So if we can get around that and starting them on this therapy, I think that would probably make more sense for reducing not just diuretic need, but also obviously improving symptoms and reducing hospitalizations. Something, I guess, to bring up in the context of diuretic therapy, in addition to the sub-analyses that were being uh, made on the liver, there were a few analyses or a few trials done on other SGLT2 inhibitor therapies, specifically empagliflozin. I think we can, we can think back to things like the Impulse trial or the MPAG-HF trial, which were also pr- pretty recently published. And sure enough, we see that starting SGLT2 inhibitor therapy early on in acutely decompensated heart failure patients not only improves symptom scores, not only has an improvement in quality of life, but in the MPAG-HF trial specifically, it shows that there is truly an increase in urine output. It was a very short trial. It was only a few days, so they didn't see Surprisingly, a reduction in weight, but they did see greater increase in urine output. So uh, we don't think of SGLT2 inhibitors as diuretics, and we shouldn't, but they're definitely great additions to reducing the diuretic needs of patients. So Tom, morbidity is huge. I don't think that's a point of argument, but to play the devil's advocate here, we haven't really found hard outcomes benefit, i.e. mortality, with our SGLT2 inhibitors. Is this something that should make it into quote-unquote core therapy for our HFPEF patients? So I, again, just based on everything that we talked about, honestly, I think that even though we didn't find the hard outcome of mortality in this trial or in the previous trial, despite that, I, I think that it's still worthwhile to pursue this therapy. There have been some meta-analyses done on SGLT2 inhibitors. And again, these are sub-analyses. So of course, take things with a grain of salt, um, even though I do love sub-analyses. There was one published recently after Deliver was published. I think this one came out in Lancet. When you combine the results of all of these trials and despite LVF, when, we look, when you look at all SGLT2 inhibitor therapy, between the liver, between Emperor Preserved, between Emperor Reduced, and UPIHF, you do see that when you get more patients uh, analyzed, you do see that those numbers or that benefit of mortality does show up. The, the confidence interval, interval narrows down. So you do see that there's a plausible uh, mortality reducing effect. When you look at just heart failure with an injection fraction of above 40, it's a little bit more difficult to make that claim even in this in the meta, meta-analyses, despite the fact that they're analyzing about 12,000 patients. It's still not crossing the, the point of statistical significance. And there is some heterogeneity in these trials, surprisingly. However, I don't think that defeats the point of while there not being any hard outcomes, the improvement in quality of life 
the reduction in hospitalizations, I mean, that's already key. Um, like you said, morbidity is huge. So the other thing to consider is the cost of these agents. I mean, when you look at the cost of these agents, so they're what, somewhere between six and $700 just for a month's therapy. So this speaks to us as pharmacists. We can help get patients either approved for these medications or find ways to get better access to these medications. So it's not just about identifying candidates for these agents. It's not just about getting excited about starting these agents. This also begs the question, can our patients afford these medications? And will the high cost of these medications outweigh the hospitalization rates of patients with heart failure with preserved and mildly reduced ejection fractions? Those are questions for economics, but you know, still going back to the question, is this something that we should consider into core therapy uh, for patients with HEFPATH? I think so. I think this could truly be something that even though it doesn't reduce mortality, at least the improvement in quality of life is something that our patients greatly desire. And even if it's not showing this robust reduction in mortality, the sheer fact that they have an improved quality of life, the sheer fact that these agents can prevent or help treat diabetes, which, you know, longer term obviously is a bigger problem and help prevent uh, progression of CKD. That's yet another big point for me to really consider these medications. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree with you, Tom. We haven't had, a, as you have outlined, really a ton of satisfying, if you will, trials in our HEFPEF patient population. And it's just been like, we have a HEF pa- patient come in, you know, we manage their blood pressure, we get them on diuretics as appropriate. I was in the uh, spironolactone camp getting something on board to help out with heart failure hospitalizations, but it's really nice to have some positive trials with these SGLT2 inhibitors. So I'm I'm in agreement with you there. So I think we'd be remiss maybe as pharmacists and maybe it'd be helpful for our listeners. We just took a second to review who should we avoid SGLT2 inhibitors in? Yeah, I think that's still a very important thing to bring up, right? So obviously we're not thinking about a lot of the patients who would still have contraindications to SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. I mean, we're still excluding patients with those poor renal functions, less than 24 ampagliflozin, less than 25 for dapagliflozin. Uh, patients with end-stage renal disease obviously are not candidates. Type 1 diabetics are patients who are not supposed to be on SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. To begin with, many patients experience nausea, vomiting, side effects, uh, weight loss uh, with these agents. So there's definitely a lot of points to remember with SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. I think something that a lot of us were educated on when we were, you know, finding out about the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors in diabetes was, okay, if you have a diabetic patient on insulin or on sulfonylureas, you should really remember about reducing the insulin and, and sulfonylurea dose in patients who have those lower A1Cs in order not to precipitate hypoglycemia. There's still that fear of patients developing ketoacidosis, even though when you look at these trials, you know, between Emperor Preserved and Deliver, there were maybe 11 instances of ketoacidosis between, you know, basically 12,000 patients. So when the trials for uh, ampagliflozin and the epiglyphosin were coming out and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. A lot of my providers were really hesitant 
hesitant to start these agents, not even from an economical perspective, which is yet another thing to consider. They were really worried about these side effects. You know, they were telling me, I know these agents can cause ketoacidosis. They were really worried about UTIs, infections. Those points are definitely noted, right? I mean, we definitely want to avoid ketoacidosis. We definitely want to avoid that risk of genital mycotic infections. So not bacterial UTIs, but uh, fungal infections. So our, maybe our elderly population that wears diapers that are not able to have great hygiene, maybe those are not the best patients to consider for SGLT2 inhibitors because we, don't wanna, we do want to avoid those general mycotic infections. Also remembering that when you have a patient scheduled for surgery, it's important to stop that SGLT2 inhibitor three to four days before you go for that surgery just to reduce the risk of acidosis. And then, you know, just another thing to remember when we're talking to our providers, when you start that SGLT2 inhibitor, you will see a reduction in EGFR and that's, and that's okay. We know that that reduction in GFR happens. We know that over time, give or take three months, because that's when we saw it in clinical trials, we see that there's that depletion in EGFR, but then the EGFR either normalizes after those three months or it improves, hence the nephroprotective uh, effects of SGLT2 inhibitors. So just remind your providers, especially on the inpatient side of things, not to be afraid of the dip, uh, continue the therapy, and the EGFR will either normalize or, or it will improve. So there are a lot of counseling points that we have to be aware of. So just remembering those would be really, really important for our listeners and obviously for our patients. Nice. Thanks for summarizing that, Tom. Any final thoughts or takeaways for our listeners? Yes. So I think for our listeners that are pharmacists, I think it's important to remember to address some of that clinical inertia that comes with optimizing heart failure therapy. And especially when it comes to treating heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, because there is no quote unquote optimal GDMT or guideline directed medical therapy. What we have is just a few recommendations from the guidelines that say diuretics, first line for symptom management. Then there's that two-way recommendation for SGLT2 inhibitors, and then you have everything else. You don't really even have a recommendation for beta blockers, right? Unless there is a specific indication like AFib or recent MI or anything like that. So I hear the worries in a lot of the providers' minds thinking about, you know, there's really no hard evidence for starting any of these agents, but us overcoming that clinical inertia is really going to be key. I think addressing reluctance in a lot of uh, providers by talking about, you know, the renal effects of uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, of their minimal risk for developing side effects, uh, hypoglycemia. I know that a lot of providers are worried that SGLT2 inhibitors can tank someone's blood pressure. So again, it's just kind of on us to remember, to remind our providers and even our patients that yes, the risks of side effects are there, but they're not as common as we might think they are. You know, it's like kind of going back to that Stanton myopathy conversation. Like, yes, the risk definitely exists, but it is, but it's less than you think. So at the end of the day, my final thoughts are, if I have to choose between any of the new recommendations for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction uh, or mildly reduced ejection fraction, especially since in my practice, I personally see a lot more patients that are newly decompensated. I see a lot of patients who are recently hospitalized. That's a big reason for me to put the SGLT2 inhibitor in the front 
and then consider other, other therapies based on comorbidities. Obviously, if comorbidities like hypertension play a more significant role in taking care of somebody, then of course I'm addressing that first. But barring everything else, I think this is an excellent class of medications to add in order to reduce the risk of hospitalizations. Well, Tom, thank you again so much for joining us on CardioScripts and walking us through the Deliver trial. Thank you so much. It truly is an honor. I've been a fan of the podcast for many, many years. So it's been an honor. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at CardioScripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.